Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, good afternoon, and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. The speaker today is a guest lecturer for our new energy security, security course at IWP. This course is taught by uh, Dr. Sarah Vakshuri, um, so if you have any questions, please feel free to visit our website um, or you can speak with her directly um, after the lecture. Stephen D. Uli is a Vice President for Climate and Technology at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Energy Institute. With more than two decades of experience, Mr. Uli is a recognized and respected expert on the nexus between energy and climate change. He engages with business groups across the world, is asked frequently to testify before Congress, and is quoted often in major media outlets. Mr. Yuli represents the Chamber in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and helped found the major econo economies business forum on energy security and climate change, a coalition of more than 20 national cross-sector business organizations from major economies. Mr. Yuli also is responsible for GEI's two authoritative energy security reports, the Index of U.S. Energy Security Risk and the International Index of Energy Security Risk. Mr. Yuli earned a Master of Arts degree in Geography from the George Washington University and a Bachelor of Science degree in Biology from Southern Connecticut State College. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Institute for World Politics. Uh, so let's just jump right into it. I'm going to talk to you today about the Energy Security Risk Index that we do at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There are two indexes that we're going to talk about, and I hope to get through in time so that we have uh, some give and take at the end of the uh, the presentation. I mean, if we can figure out how to work this, I guess it goes. Okay, so energy security has been a perennial political problem here in the United States, certainly since the, uh, the late 60s and early 70s. I'm not going to read all these, but since Rick, Richard Nixon was president, energy security has been a, uh, uh, a perennial political problem. And it doesn't matter, Democratic or Republican, doesn't make a difference. Energy security has always been near the top of the political and policy agenda for presidents going back uh, through Nixon. Energy security was like the weather back in those days, and everybody complained about it, but nobody did anything about it. So I'm gonna show you how, uh, how that, that's changed over the years. So what do we mean by energy security? Well, in Washington, D.C., energy security usually revolved around three metrics. What was the price of crude oil? Uh, and if you're a politician, what's the price of a gallon of gasoline? And uh, another, um, another one is, are we energy independent? Uh, and I say, to have the bottom, energy independence does not necessarily mean energy security. They're two different concepts, but that does not stop politicians, policymakers in Washington from uh, uh, touting the benefits of energy independence. Uh, but from our perspective, it means a whole lot more than just those things. It's not just how much oil we report, it's who we're reporting from, how much do we pay, who gets the money, are the people who get the money, friends of the United States or foes of the United States. How vulnerable are we to things like weather disruptions, uh, geopolitical disruptions, how sustainable is our energy over the long term. So these are many facets of, of uh, energy security uh, that we've taken into account in our indexes. And the most important thing is it's more than about oil. Uh, energy security is uh, largely focused on oil for decades. From our perspective, it's more than about oil. Okay, so here's some of the dimensions of energy security. I'm not going to go into great detail on this slide, but <clears throat> what we did is we looked at what are the, what are the areas where energy security has uh, most salience, and we, we came up with four of them. Uh, geopolitical risks, there are economic risks, there are liability risks, 
and increasingly there are environmental risks. So those are the four buckets that we kind of uh, took a look at energy security in. And you can see some of the, uh, the dimensions that we took a look at. Uh, so we asked the question, why an energy security risk index? We got started on this uh, project uh, because, you know, we're the Chamber of Commerce and we put out policy documents. And back in 2008, we did what we call the blueprint uh, for energy. Uh, and one of the claims we're making in our blueprint was if you followed the policies that we laid out in this document, it's going to improve U.S. energy security. And then we started asking ourselves the question, well, how do we know that? And that led to some research into energy security and energy security measures. And what we found was that no one had created a measure for energy security. So we said, well, if no one has created one, maybe we should do one ourselves. And so that's what we did. I thought this was going to be a three, four month project when we started it. Uh, we wound up taking us a year and a half to do the first U.S. energy security risk index. And uh, I started presenting the U.S. index. And one of the questions I would always get when I presented the U.S. index, well, that's great. The U.S. seems to be doing okay. How does it compare to the rest of the world? So we started thinking about that. I said, well, maybe you ought to do an international index. So I'll talk a little bit about the international index later on. Uh, the U.S. index provides two frames of reference, where we are compared to where we were back in 1970. And then we also use forecasts from the Energy Information Administration to uh, project where our energy security might be going uh, as far into the future as EIA looks. Uh, and then the International Index provides that third frame of reference how does the U.S. compare to other large energy-consuming countries. So, one of the first things we had to do in developing our metric is to figure out what it is we're going to measure. And so here are some of the factors that we took a look at uh, when we considered what metrics we would use. Uh, sensible. The data have to be sensible and, and uh, have to comport with common sense expectations. The data have to be credible. Most often that means that we used government data where government data were available. We've used, used some private sector data. Uh, we used some data from IEA. But most of the data that we use comes from the Energy Information Administration and other U.S. government uh, agencies. And that takes care of the next issue, transparency. Uh, we had to be uh, transparent in what it is, the data we were using, it had to be readily accessible, and then we had to be clear on how we were manipulating the data and what it is we're doing with the data. Complete, uh, we wanted the index to go back to 1970, if at all possible. Uh, and there's a lot of data that go back almost as far, or nearly as far, to 1970. Uh, updatable, we, want, we wanted to do this every year, so we wanted to make sure that every year there were revisions to historical data and then new data for a data year. And then perspective, this gets into the forecasts. Uh, where, where possible, we wanted to be able to use energy forecasts so that we could uh, come, come up with a projection of energy security risks going forward. Sometimes reality falls short of the ideal. But we never let the enemy be uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, there are a whole host of holes in, in, in the data, and we do our best to fill in those gaps where those gaps occur. Uh, and we're pretty clear about where those do occur, uh, and that's part of the transparency. Um, but we, we're not going to let the perfect be the enemy good in, in this. And I think overall, we've we've done a pretty good job of um, uh, coming up with something that's certainly credible. All right. So, yeah. And by the way, do we want to ask questions at the end? If people want to ask questions during the presentation, that's okay with me. Okay with you? Yeah? Yeah, at the end. Okay. Uh, so, for the US index, we use 37 different metrics. And these are the nine categories that we use. Is this, is that, that going to work? That's no, not going to work. Okay. Uh, Global fuel metrics, those metrics uh, measure the risks that attach to uh, world supplies of crude oil, natural gas, and coal. Fuel import metrics, uh, um, the security of, uh, of our imports of oil and gas, and how much we pay uh, for imports of oil and gas. Energy expenditure metrics, these concerned, and, and uh, price and market volatility, these concern uh, how much we pay, what the price is, what the volatility is. Uh, energy intensity metrics uh, and energy use metrics, these focus on energy uh, efficiency uh, by and large. 
by, uh, by sector and also overall. Uh, energy power sector metrics, we were able to get three of those, focusing mostly on uh, reliability. Uh, transportation sector metrics focus mostly on the supply uh, uh, of uh, oil and other energy to the transportation sector and also the efficiency of the transportation sector. Environmental metrics are almost uh, all, well, they all focus around emissions of greenhouse gases, whether total emissions or emissions per unit of GDP or per capita. And finally, uh, research and development metrics. Uh, this is supposed to get to the idea that uh, over time, uh, the uh, energy systems in the United States uh, get more sophisticated, uh, the technologies get more sophisticated, and so good uh, sort of leading indicator of where our energy security might be going is the amount that we invest in uh, energy R&D. So, uh, we take those 37 different metrics and we combine them in different ways to come up with four sub-indexes. Uh, and these are the things that I mentioned earlier, the four buckets that we uh, take a look at when we consider uh, energy security. Uh, we come up with a geopolitical index, a sub-index, an economic sub-index, a reliability sub-index, an environmental sub-index. Many of the 37 metrics are included in more than one of the sub-indexes. Uh, they're weighted differently. Not all the metrics are in all the sub-indexes. Right? Uh, then we take our four, uh, four sub-indexes, uh, we weight them 30% uh, geopolitical, 30% economic, 20% for environment and reliability, and we come up with one single number, the index of U.S. energy security risk. So that's kind of how we do it. Uh, there's a lot more, obviously, that goes in, in here. Uh, we weight them all a little bit differently, and we can talk about that later if you would like. That's pretty much a rundown on, on how we arrive at the, uh, the number. Uh, so here is the index. So a couple of things I want to tell you. When, we do, when you do an index, you have to, uh, you measure uh, metrics in values, and you have to convert those values to an index. And so one of the problems we had, or one of the issues we had was, okay, uh, what is going to be our base here? And, um, we decided on 1980 being the base year. A lot of bad stuff going on. Leading up to 1980 with the oil embargo, uh, you had the uh, invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, you had a couple of recessions in the United States, you obviously had the Iranian hostage crisis, or uh, you, the efficiency of the U.S. economy wasn't very good, uh, there were a lot of risks that uh, tended to oil. So I know there's a lot of bad stuff happened in 1980. And when you talk to people on the, in the energy space and they think back to 1980, they shudder, right? So we said, okay, uh, we're going to set our baseline as, uh, at, at 1980, and we're going to give 1980 a score of 100. So all our 37 metrics, when we convert them into an index, uh, we give them a score of 100. And then everything uh, revolves around that 100 score, and that's how we come up with the individual indexes for the, uh, the 37 metrics. And that's how we come up with the score of 100 for 1980. So the second thing I'm going to tell you, this is like the golf score, right? We're measuring risk here. So uh, high is bad, low is good. Yeah. So um, anytime your risk score approaches 100, bad things are either are happening or potentially could happen. Yeah. Uh, and any time your risk score is uh, well below 100, things are going pretty well, all right? So this is what it looks like going back from 1970 to uh, uh, out to 2040. And I will click here and show you a few things that have happened. And what, what, what we, when we started doing this, we had no idea what this was going to look like. But it's funny, sort of the peaks and valleys kind of correspond with uh, the way uh, we think about our energy security, at least the way my, my consultant and I thought about it. You have the Arab oil embargo in the early 70s and see increasing risk all the way up to the Iranian hostage crisis. Then after 1980, you see um, a, a pretty large decline in risk of about 25 points from 1980 through the mid-1990s. Now, I, I showed you earlier all those quotes from presidents. Yeah, I had a heck of a time finding a, a quote on energy security from Bill Clinton. And if you look at the Energy Security Risk Index, uh, Bill, on Bill Clinton's administration, he had some of the lowest scores on the record of the index. So, it was, so that kind of explains why we had a very difficult time finding a quote from him on energy security, because energy security wasn't a big deal. And our chart 
our index actually uh, um, shows that. Uh, so from the Iranian hot discards to the mid-1990s, uh, mid you have greater U.S. output, you have the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System uh, coming into play, which delivered a lot of Alaskan oil to world markets. You had uh, North Sea oil uh, increasing production at that time. The U.S. economy got a lot more efficient. Uh, back during the Arab oil embargo, we were getting about 12% of our electricity from oil. Uh, and so people were getting hit not only every time they fill up the gas tank, but every time they paid the uti their utilities. So we started seeing a switch from, from oil to uh, uh, a little bit to natural gas, but more coal and nuclear uh, during the 1980s. Uh, we also saw the Saudis drive the, the price of oil down uh, in the, in the, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So we see a lot of things happening over this period that resulted in a much uh, a very low risk low risk SAS actually in the mid-1990s. And then from the mid-1990s, 2000, we start seeing risks increase. Uh, we see in increase in the price of natural gas and the price of crude oil. And we hit a high risk uh, in uh, 2011. I think it was 101, po 101 points. Uh, and since then, uh, we've seen about a 25-point drop in risks between 2011 and our most recent number, which is 2018. And I'm going to ask this question. A lot of people get this. The reason for that drop? Can anybody? Close, yeah. Hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, shale. That's the shale revolution right there. What I, what I tell people is that when you, when you look at 1970 to 1980, that was about a 25-point increase over 10 years. That was very, very fast. I'm sorry? No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this. Right? So that was an increase in 25 points. And then in fewer years, we saw a decrease from 2011 to 2018 of about 25 points, which means that as far as U.S. energy security risks are concerned, the shale revolution was as consequential as all the bad stuff that happened in the, in, in the 1970s, leading up to 1980. I mean, that's how impactful uh, the shale, roof, shale revolution has been. Because when we think about all the bad stuff that happened in, in, in the 1970s, uh, the fact that the shale revolution uh, compares to that, uh, to the good, uh, is, is, I think, testament to how dramatically uh, that the shale revolution has affected uh, uh, U.S. energy. Uh, and then the red, the forecast period, it's very, very low. We're looking at forecasts now that are below uh, the record low from the mid-1990s. So the future looks pretty bright when it comes to U.S. energy security. And I think, yeah, one thing I like to do, uh, and my contractor like to, we both, we both think this is a great way to analyze things, is to look at what your view of the future was a few years ago compared to what your view of the future is today. And so what we did was we, we went back and looked at the, uh, the forecast from the Energy Information Administration, and we plugged our model into it, and we looked at what we thought our energy security risk might be out to, in some, out to 2030 to 2040. And the blue line at the top, uh, whoops. Uh, so this blue line at the top the first year that we did it, and we were expecting that we would get risk scores between 95 and 100 all the way out to 2030. So that was in 2010. That was right at the very beginning of the shale revolution. And then you see the big black dotted line. That's the most recent uh, forecast that we have. And you can see because of the shale revolution now, our risks going out to 2040 are considerably lower than they were just, just 10 years ago. And again, that's, that's, uh, that's due to the... Uh, application of hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, and advanced seismic imaging that led to the shale revolution. Okay. And these are some key metrics uh, in the index that we take a look at. The metrics that have moved most over the years. Uh, at the top, you had crude oil production, natural gas production. So these, the, the red lines are the forecasts that were made uh, in the annual energy outlook in 2010. The blue line is the forecast from the most recent uh, annual, annual energy outlook. And you can see huge differences in our view of the future. 
right? So if, where, we, where we thought we might be producing anywhere from five and a half to six million barrels of oil a day, crude oil a day, we're now talking about about 14 to 15 million barrels a day of crude oil, all the way out to 2050. Nobody imagined this back in 2010. Same thing with natural gas production. All right, natural gas production from about uh, 2020 on out will increase every year. Every year out to 2050, we're expected to hit a new record in natural gas production. And obviously that's gonna have a big impact on our net crude oil imports. Uh, we see that uh, the AEO, the blue line again, our net crude oil imports are down to about, oof, about three million barrels a day out to 2050. And uh, net natural gas imports, uh, we are, well, we are now a net natural gas importer happened for the past year and a half. So these, uh, the metrics that are connected to these crude oil production, natural gas production imports, weigh very heavily into the index. And so this explains why we've seen such a dramatic drop uh, in our risk scores. So we are going to see some risks hit zero. We don't, we don't measure negative risks uh, in, in the index. And these are not risk index scores either. These are the actual metrics. So you have U.S. natural gas imports. We're now a net, uh, a net exporter. U.S. net petroleum imports, we include in the import figure, we include uh, product. So within the next couple of years, we are going to be a net exporter, according to the IA. We're going to be a net exporter of U.S. petroleum. And that means our U.S. oil and gas expenditures and our oil and gas expenditures as a share of GDP are also gonna go negative uh, in the next couple of years, which means that we're gonna have four very significant metrics in our index that are gonna have risk scores of zeros. I gotta tell you, when we started doing this, we never anticipated that we would ever see anything like this. We anticipated that for years and years and years, our story in our index is gonna be of increasing risk. And it's not, hasn't been. And that's all because of the share revolution, once again. And I said, I always put the slide on, I always have to apologize for it because I, I, I said that, um, you know, energy independence is not the same as energy security, but people are very interested in, in, in energy independence, uh, especially the occupant of the White House. Um, so this is just net energy imports as a share of uh, US energy demand. And what's interesting, this thing starts, starts in 1949 and we were net, we were about we produced about the same amount of energy in 1950 that we consumed, and you can see over the years we uh, by by the time we hit about 2008 2009 we were importing about 30 percent of the total amount of energy that we consumed, and that little red line is the forecast from from uh, the AEO 2010. Uh, we EIA anticipated that we would still be importing anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of our energy out to the future. But you can see what's happened. Uh, we now expect that within the next year or two, the U.S. will actually be uh, uh, exporting more uh, energy than it imports. Okay, so uh, shale's everywhere, so why was the U.S. number one? Uh, number of reasons for this technology was, uh, was developed here. We have the infrastructure here. We have an entrepreneurial uh, uh, we have an entrepreneurial economy here. Uh, probably the biggest thing is that uh, in the United States, if you own the land, you own the mineral rights under that land. It's almost unique in the world. And, uh, you know, when I think about President Obama's legacy, he wanted to be known as the green energy president. You know, and, and you can make a case that he, that he was a green energy president. But he also provided over the revitalization of the oil and gas industry in the United States. And I'm convinced the reason it happened on his watch is because almost all the increase in production from shale formations has come from private land, private and state, uh, state land. And the reason is because people got to check in the end of the month. They don't mind the noise, they don't mind the dirt, they don't mind the lights, they don't mind the traffic because at the end of the month, they get something from the, from the producer. Uh, the states and local governments love it because they get some royalty money from this. And this is, when I talk with people overseas, that is the big stumbling block, but well, one of the big stumbling blocks with developing shale formations over years, uh, overseas is how do you get local communities to get any benefit from the shale resource? And it's a, it's a 
big conundrum. And a lot of folks are thinking long and hard about how do you get the local community to buy into sh developing their shale for or letting companies develop the shale formations in their area if they don't see any benefit. So I think that's one of the big stumbling blocks. I think that's something a lot of countries are working on. Uh, and we'll see how successful that they're going to be. All right, I also mentioned uh, energy uh, efficiency earlier. We do have a number of metrics. Uh, there's no surprise here. Since, since uh, our metrics began, we're seeing great improvement in energy efficiency, um, depending on how you measure it. Uh, where we're not seeing so much, really, is in U.S. household energy efficiency. Our houses are becoming much more energy efficient, but they're also becoming bigger, all right? And we have more household gadgets that run on electricity. So they're becoming more energy intensive in, in many respects. But our industrial energy efficiency, commercial energy efficiency are, are doing quite well. And the importance of this is that these things don't move very fast. There's some, some, some metrics in our index that can move quite rapidly. Uh, price, crude oil price volatility, for example. But these things move very slowly. But at the same time, they are able to moderate risks uh, over the longer term. So uh, we, we, we do some sensitivity analysis, and, and it's amazing how much energy efficiency has improved. Yeah. How much energy efficiency has improved our risk scores um, compared to uh, you know 1970 to 1980s? So this this is a big moderating factor that we can't overlook. They're not sexy, they don't move fast. Uh, we don't report a lot of them in our reports because they don't move fast. Uh, but I wanted to draw your attention to the, the fact that these are incredibly important moderating risks. Okay, um, we ha do have a lot of metrics that, that focus on um, uh, emissions of carbon dioxide. And uh, a lot of that's in the power sector. This is another area where obviously where the shale revolution has had a big impact. Uh, we're seeing a lot of substitution of uh, coal for natural gas in the power sector. And are you all familiar with the Kaya identity? Um, so these are the four factors that contribute um, to emissions, either in carbon, carbon emissions from energy, either increasing or decreasing. Uh, and they are GDP. Um, Population growth, uh, electricity intensity, if you're doing the economy wide, you would, you would look at energy intensity, but electricity intensity, how much electricity it takes to produce a dollar of GDP, and then CO2 intensity of generation, how much generation, uh, how much CO2 do you emit per uh, uh, megawatt hour. Uh, and so you see that, that in the red bar is GDP, blue is population, those, could, those are above zero, so they they put upward pressure on CO2 emissions. Uh, and the green and the, uh, the purple are below the zero. They, they've been putting downward pressure on uh, CO2 emissions since 1970. And I just want to draw your attention to the purple, how, how, much, uh, how long those bars have gotten over the past six, seven, eight years. That's all because of the shale revolution and the substitution of, uh, of uh, coal, uh, of natural gas for coal. And the black dotted line just shows you that beginning around 2007, 2008, you've seen a dramatic decline in uh, CO2 emissions from the power sector. Again, this lowers our risk. And again, nobody anticipated this, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, but this is what's happening. Okay, uh, affordable energy is also a competitive advantage. I show slides like this to my colleagues in, in Europe. They always break out into cold sweat when they see it. So these are the, uh, the prices for electricity for industry, uh, prices of natural gas for industry, and prices of steam coal for industry. In the U.S. and other OECD countries, I've highlighted the U.S. price in red so that you can see in just about every case, the U.S., well, in all cases, the U.S. is either between the first, second, or third cheapest. This is a huge competitive advantage. Um, the president has made, uh, made this a priority, keeping this advantage. It's central to his uh, uh, plans to revitalize U.S. manufacturing. It gives the U.S. a huge competitive advantage, and it's one of the benefits of uh, not only the shale revolution, but, but energy security in general. Okay, so what are some new risks? 
Uh, one of the questions I always get asked is, you, you do anything? Do you measure um, rare earths and those sort of things? Uh, we haven't measured rare earths, but we're considering it because uh, we weren't quite sure that, that the data were robust enough for us to do that. But since uh, uh, over the last year or so, we've kind of taken a, a deep dive into um, some of the data in uh, for, for uh, what we call critical earth elements, cobalt, uh, graphite, lithium, and rare earths. These are all uh, materials that are used not just in information technologies, uh, but also used in energy technologies as well. And so, uh, and, and they've also become a, a big concern to the administration, and um, this, is, this is why. Uh, what, what we do, actually what we do with a lot of our metric, but what I did here was we take Freedom House scores, right? So Freedom House measures political and civil liberties. And uh, we take those scores, and what we do, in this case, what we've done is weight world production of uh, these four materials. Uh, using the Freedom House scores. Uh, Freedom House also um, categorizes countries into to free, partly free, and not free countries. So that's what I've done here. But I've also added China in. China is a, a sort of light red here. So the free countries are the, country, the countries in green, yellow, partly free countries, red, not free countries, and sort of light red uh, China for these elements. So you look at world graphite production and rare earth production, two charts on, on the, uh, the right-hand side, China dominates us. Uh, and if you look at the one on the upper left, that's world cobalt production. Even though China doesn't dominate cobalt production, other bad actors do. Uh, and today, most really, about 80% of, of global production in cobalt is coming from countries that Freedom House uh, categorizes as not free. For... Graphite, it's about uh, about 75 percent, uh, and it's about 80 percent for rare earths. Lithium, it, oh, yes, sir. Are you mixing production with refining? No, this is mine production. That's actual production. Of right. Mine, right. Refining. Right. And I understand refining is an issue too, but we haven't we haven't delved into that yet. So right now we're just looking at production. Um, and even lithium, where, where it looks pretty good, I mean, China dominates about that time. About 10% of the market uh, in production as well. Yeah, so we understand what refining and reserves. This is just one shot to sort of demonstrate that this is an issue. And this kind of graphically shows. So uh, to make a long story short, we are looking into this. One of the one of the, the issues that we have are: can we can we trust the data? Will the data be forthcoming? Um, will uh, how would we weight these? So when you weight your when you when, when you weight the, uh, the metrics in your index, the weightings have to add up to 100. So that means we add uh, some metrics on uh, uh, critical earth elements, and we have to figure out what do we what do we take from. And then there's also a question of how do you phase these in? Nobody cared about these things in 1970, but people care about them today. So would it be fair for us to give it uh, the same weight in the 1970s we do today? We don't think so. Uh, but we're not quite sure what that weighting should be. So look out for the uh, U.S. index, which will be coming out probably within the ne next month. We have some information. I have a whole section on this. And we're asking people to give some ideas on where they, how, how they think we should be treating uh, these critical earth elements in upcoming indexes. So uh, that's going to be a change that we will see. Uh, okay, so the international index. Uh, it's a little bit different than the, uh, the U.S. index. We live in a very data-rich environment here in the United States. You get outside the United States, you don't have quite as much data. So we use 29 metrics. We don't have... Uh, we have the same metric groups except for uh, research and development. We started in 1980, and we focus on the largest 25 energy-consuming countries, sort of. We have a couple of exceptions. Uh, we don't have a forecast component. And we established an OECD baseline uh, for comparison. Uh, and that's 1980 equals 1,000. We chose 1,000 because we didn't want to confuse this with the U.S. index, which is 100. Because the U.S. numbers are different. They have to be different because we're using... 29 metrics instead of 37 metrics. So, uh, 
then these, again, these are some compromises that you have to make uh, when you do this sort of thing. So total risk scores for 19, uh, I'm sorry, for 2016, uh, the U.S. is number two. Yay. Uh, Norway is number one. Uh, and at the bottom of the list is Ukraine. We have data from Ukraine starting in 1992. It's been number 25 since 1992. It probably will remain number 25 for dozens of years. Uh, it's got a lot of problems. Um, but uh, it's a pretty... Um, I don't think it's a, it, it's a surprising list. One of the one of the countries that a lot of people are, are, are surprised at with the ranking is Russia, uh, because they figure with all the resources that Russia had, it should be ranked higher. Russia has a tremendous amount of resources, but again, it's not just about energy resources; it's how efficiently you use those resources. And so, Russia scores very well when it comes to our energy import metrics and those sorts of things. It scores very poorly on environmental metrics, very poorly on uh, energy efficiency metrics. So uh, while it has some distinct advantages, it also has a number of problems uh, as well. Um, so I think I'll skip this, won't, won't go too much into detail on this and, and just talk a little bit about, uh, so this is kind of the, our spaghetti chart of, of the historical rankings. You can see uh, Ukraine here. We, we had to actually inset it because otherwise it would make the chart a little weird. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so here's the U.S. in red, and, and the, the big heavy black line is the uh, OECD average. So you can see this U.S. score was above the OECD average for a number of years, and then uh, starting around 2009 or so, uh, our risk scores moved below the OECD average. And I'll show you this in more detail uh, in a minute. Uh, so here's our rankings. So there are two things here. There's the ranking. Uh, and, and the risk score. Uh, so since about 1980, the U.S. Uh, was ranked anywhere from about 8 to 11, you know, kind of chugging along, and then you can see the impact of the shale revolution. We started climbing the rankings, and uh, in our most recent edition, 2016, uh, we, are, we achieved a ranking of two. Actually, in 2015, we received, uh, we achieved two. Uh, we're, we do this index every two years. We're in the middle of doing this now. Uh, and I can't share with you the data on where we rank today because I haven't seen it yet, but, but my contractor has. So anyway, that'll also be coming out over, over the next few months. But point here is we, you can see the impact of the share revolution on, on the U.S. and how it uh, compares uh, to other countries. So one of the things we do is an analytical tool. We compare... Uh, how the U.S. or every country, how its risk scores compare to OECD, and this is essentially the OECD is the uh, the average is the red line, and the blue line represents the percent difference between uh, whatever country you're looking at and the OECD average. So you can see here the U.S. since 1980 chugging along nicely, it's pretty much the same story as the previous chart, except the uh, the line is moving in a different direction. And then around 2005 or so, you see a tremendous drop in risk score vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the OECD average. And so today we're about 10% below the OECD average, um, which is actually quite good. If you saw Mexico, for example, Mexico, I don't have the, the chart here, but Mexico uh, from 1980 was about 30% below the OECD average. But it's been creeping up and up and up and up and up and up. Mexico actually scores very well in our index. Uh, it's number four. It scores very well in our index, but if you look historically, uh, you will you will see that that well, I'm, I'm sorry. When you look at comparatively against against the OECD average, you can see that Mexico, even though it scores very well, is losing ground. So it's moving in the wrong direction. Uh, and I think uh, the constitutional reforms are kind of a, re a reflection of their recognition uh, that they were moving in the wrong direction. Um, so this is uh, just a, one chart that shows you different types of energy security challenges. I'm not going to go into any great detail on this chart. But what I did here was uh, put in the uh, total scores for the different groups, the subgroups uh, that I mentioned, environmental, transportation, uh, imports, and everything. I just want to show you something real quickly. Is that you see I, I did Australia, Canada, and U.S. average those together. Uh, the red at the bottom. 
Those are the, uh, that's the, the average score for those countries for imports. You can see that imports contribute a very, very small amount uh, of risk to the total risk score for those countries. And then look at the Western Europe. I got a big import problem in Western Europe. And then when you look at down uh, the, the bottom left, the developing countries, they have a pretty big uh, contribution from fuel imports, but the key thing is it's growing. Uh, and we've, you see that a lot in this, is that risks, energy security risks seem to grow as developing countries move into middle income. And then they, they start to go down after that. Yes, sir. It's hard to see the yeah. lines exactly, but, but these, these are risk scores, right, that are going down in the later years in all cases. That's what appears to be the Yes. Right? But the U.S. stayed steady over that same period. No, it, it, went, it went down. Yeah. Well, the future seemed to be fairly straight. And, and uh, well, this, this is not the future. This, so this, this well, ends in, in 2016. Yeah. Okay. So here are some takeaways uh, that, that from, from both the U.S. And, and the international index is energy security risks are all linked. Uh, energy security improvements anywhere improve energy security everywhere, and the uh, reverse of that is true. Disruptions anywhere can can affect energy security and consumers everywhere. Uh, if you have a large resource base and you are a very efficient economy, you tend to score very, very well. Uh, two examples are Norway and the United Kingdom. Both have large uh, resource base, both pretty efficient economies. Large resource base plus inefficiency, you don't score very well. And again, Russia is the perfect example of that. Uh, energy security is affected by factors uh, over which countries sometimes don't have any control. I mean, Canada is a cold climate. And when you look at Canada's uh, energy intensity scores, they're not very good. And one of the reasons they're not good is because they have to use a lot of energy for uh, space heating. It's a big country. They use a lot of energy transportation to get from point A to point B. It's also a country that has a lot of mining and extracting industries, which also use a lot of energy. So, I mean, geography and climate could have, have a big impact on how you score in that. And, you know, quite frankly, that's, that's no fault. The, the, the whole idea about the index is not to assign blame or a fault countries, but it's, it's sometimes just to say, this is the way it is. And so maybe from Canada's perspective, it might focus less on energy efficiency and more other things that they have greater control over, or they might redouble their efforts to, to uh, attack energy efficiency. Um, resources aren't enough uh, without a... Uh, proper investment environment. I mentioned Mexico before. I'm convinced that the Mexicans were looking north of the border, seeing what was going on with the shale revolution and said, we got to get in here. Uh, the only way to do that is to reform the Constitution. So they did. So I'm, I'm expecting that we'll see. Uh, Mexican oil production, for example, has been declining for like the last 25 years. I think we'll probably see uh, Mexico's production increase uh, because of foreign investment. Same sort of thing has been happening in Indonesia. Uh, it's not a very, uh, it's not a great place for investment, uh, Indonesia. And I think the Indonesians are beginning to recognize that. But Indonesia has a tremendous amount of resources. But its risks vis-a-vis -vis the OECD are moving in the same directions as Mexico's. <clears throat> it's getting worse uh, compared to the OECD average rather than better. And that's not a good sign for them. Um, Strong economic growth in emerging economies has exposed underlying weaknesses in energy security. We've seen this a lot with countries like India, China, even Mexico. Uh, as countries develop, they start using more energy. Uh, initially, when countries develop, we found, not every case, but they tend to use energy less efficiently early on. And then as they develop uh, and become more technologically sophisticated, they start using energy more efficiently. Uh, same thing in the transportation sector. What, you, what we find is that a lot of countries, as they develop a strong middle class, people start buying cars, they start using oil, so oil import risks and, and oil risks in general start to increase. So uh, what we do see is, though, that a lot of these developing countries and emerging economies are, are, taking, uh, are uh, looking at energy security as a strategic priority for them. Certainly the Chinese are. 
And new technology can be a disruptive force. The perfect example of that uh, is uh, the US hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, and advanced seismic imaging equals an energy revolution here in the United States. Um, and so this is my last slide. So what we do when we do the international index, we publish uh, some detailed data for the top 25 energy consuming countries in the world. And we also publish data for um, the next 50 countries, not, not in any great detail, but we but run a model for everybody. And so when you run the model for everybody, this is the list that you get, uh, the ranking that you get uh, for the top 10 countries in the world. And this is a pretty eclectic list. You got Norway on there, you got Gabon, Chad, North Korea, United States, Burma, Denmark. So can anybody explain why countries like Chad and North Korea are on this list? Bingo. I looked at this for a while and I said, okay, I can't forget this. And I said, ah, your energy security risks are pretty darn low if you're not using any energy, right? And that's really the, the, uh, the, the, the tale of this chart is that there are trade-offs. I'm sure Chad would love to trade off with some country that has a much higher energy security risk uh, than it has, right? Uh, so while well, energy security is something that, will, you know, it's been my business now for the last 10 years, but it's something that we want to pursue. We also have to recognize that using energy and accepting risks is part and parcel of, of growing. And... This, this uh, list, I think, is, uh, uh, shows that. So I think that's all I have. Um, yeah, that's who we are. So I'll be happy to address any questions uh, that you may have. Yes, sir. So you talked about energy efficiency mitigating mm -hmm. risk. I'm surprised you didn't mention renewables at all. Do renewables mitigate risk? And if they do, can you see that reflected? So renewables would get reflected in uh, <clears throat> a couple of things. And I didn't go into any great detail on these, but certainly uh, our metrics measuring um, carbon dioxide emissions. So the more renew renewables you use, the less you emit, uh, the lower your risk goes. Now, granted, the more renewables you use, your, your uh, price of electricity might go up, and electricity is a metric uh, in our index, the price of electricity. So, um, you know, it could be kind of a mixed bag for renewables, uh, depending on what the, what the, <clears throat> what the price is. Uh, we also have some diversity metrics in the power sector. So the, to the extent that you increase the, uh, uh, the capacity of renewables in the grid, uh, that's gonna lower your risk too, uh, because it's more diversity. So there, we don't measure renewables, to, and we also have a, have a metric on uh, zero emitting um, electricity sources. So we don't have a renewable uh, metric or renewable metric specifically. The, the deployment of renewables uh, does have an impact on a lot of the metrics that we do have. And one more example is in the transportation sector, we have a metric on the uh, share of uh, transportation energy that comes from oil. Uh, so obviously the higher that is, the higher your risk. There's a number of ways that you can uh, reduce that. EVs is one, and another one is, uh, is the use of biofuels. So again, we don't measure renewables specifically, but we do have a whole bunch of metrics in there that benefit from, that, that low, they get lower uh, when more renewables are deployed. Uh, okay. You, yeah. right. uh, given the recent events in Saudi Arabia, the uh, drone strike on Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. do you believe that it has affected their ranking on the risk index? Um, we, don't, we don't put Saudi Arabia in the risk index. They were actually one of the top 25 energy-consuming uh, energy countries, but they're kind of a unique case. They don't score as well, but I do look at the numbers, they don't score as well as you would expect anyway, because kind of like Russia, they don't use energy all that efficiently. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, I think yep. this was Mostly your index is uh, consuming, like from we focus on energy consuming countries, right? Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, yes, sir. I, just to answer your question, renewables. I, I, I suspect that Denmark, um, because of its hydro, gets its uh, low score 
because of the movable in Denmark. So uh, I, I suspect that's a reflection there. I just, just just put it's a good point. It's an excellent point. And Norway gets about ninety percent of its electricity from hydro, right. which in our index isn't necessarily a good thing, sure. because there's no because it's not a diverse supply. So it helps Norway when we look at the environmental metrics, right, and emissions and those sorts of things. Cheap cheap uh, energy prices helps there, but when we look at the diversity of the power sector, they don't they don't score very well on that uh, metric at all. So I'm, so. so all these metrics interact in different ways, and, and that's that's an example. May I now? May I ask a question? Sure. Um, so, I'm dealing with um, scenarios of uh, shale bankruptcies. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't necessarily see that reflected in your your forecast. It's not going to be. I mean, we, we have to use the data that are available to us. Here, here's one thing about not, not just this, but a lot of a lot of things. Like I said, we, we never put rare earths and critical earth elements in here because we, we, we didn't have the data. People have asked us, you really need a water metric. You know, we probably do need a water metric. It'd be great to have a water metric, but we can't figure out a way to create a water metric given the, the data that we have. And the same thing with, with I think, what you're talking about, it'd be very difficult for us to come up with a metric to get, get to that. Yes, but we now know that shale has a life of about 18 months in, right. in production. Right. So uh, that is a metric. So to the extent that that gets reflected in EIA's forecasts, yes. So I, I mentioned uh, that we use the EIA forecast. We also, in each uh, report, run the risk scores for each side case. So EIA has a side case on called a high oil and gas case, high resource case, and they also have a low resource case. Uh, so when, when we issue the report, you can go in and take a look at the risk scores, uh, the future risk scores uh, for each of the different side cases that the EIA does. And you know, like I said, to the extent that the EIA incorporates that to its forecast, that would get picked up in, the, uh, in our uh, risk scores. So we, this morning, uh, this um, so this is uh, the second half of our class, and uh, mm -hmm. on the first half there were some discussions and some questions were raised among the students about the forecast, and I just want to give the opportunity to students to raise their questions. Yeah, I just had a question. So um, in a lot of your forecast examples are in the graphs. They were all pretty stable for the next, you know, 10, 20, 30. Oh yeah. Um, is there, you know, something that you would? consider putting there to change that forecast, or is it worth having that in there if it looks like it's going to be stable? Or, yeah, um, no, it's it's a... I mean, I know you can't predict the future. It's a great point. <laughs> it's a great point. And anybody who's taking a look at, uh, you know, EIA forecasts of the price of crude oil, it's like that. And then when you see the price of crude oil, in actuality, it's like that. Uh, I don't think there's any, get, any way to get around that. As a matter of fact, we compound things and because... We have 39 metrics, and not all of those metrics EIA measures in its forecast. So what we do is we just take a neutral uh, stance, and we say whatever the last score is, historical score, we just run it straight out. And we just say that's not going to be a factor in the future. Um, but we tell everybody how we do this. So if you come up with a different forecast, you can plug your numbers in and see how it affects it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that we've read recognize it probably take too many resources for us to be able to come up with something. I think they were discussing that like for instance going uh, what gentlemen discussed not maybe a shell um, bankruptcy but like let's say because of environmental issues or change of policy change of president maybe we have changes in the production levels and then yeah. how that would change for future and being to ask your question about that. Um, yes ma'am. Well, one of my questions was answered because I, <coughs> I was thinking um, when this, the index was zero risk at certain points, mm -hmm. I thought, how could you have zero, zero risk? But then I see from your data, even if you lost like half the production of natural gas for natural mining, you, you would still be, you would still have a lot, right? So is that where you, how do you have zero risk? So zero, let's see. Oops. It was in your, in the report. Like, how could yeah. you give zero? I mean, this? this? This is what shows me that even if you had have so much production that even if you had half of the production, it would still be below, right? It would still be yeah, so, so remember, this, this is the actual metric. This is not the index. So when we do the index, the index goes to zero and it just it doesn't go so, below zero. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying it's like as far as risk goes. It seems like the 
strange to have zero risk. Like there would be no risk. Well, so yeah, so so you could have zero risk for an individual metric. That right. all that means is that individual metrics you don't have a risk anymore. And we, when we do the risk, it's not just the, for the imports. It's not just about how much you import. It's also about the risk attached to the either barrel of oil or uh, a cubic foot of natural gas that that you would import. So there are two there are two dimensions to to these. But once you hit zero, once you once you become a net exporter, your import risk is is, is gone. And then my second question was for: um, Do you provide information to insurance companies, like your chamber of commerce? Who is your customer? Like you're you're all my customers. Well, I know. Uh, we know that insurance companies take a look at this. We know the IEA takes a look at it because obviously they're, you know, it's it's their mandate, energy security. Uh, yeah. So it, we we I, I go through the list. I, I, I we have you know Google Analytics. You can see who looks at our stuff, and it's amazing. We get we get everybody, all kinds of folks looking at this. Uh, yeah, I think you had well, you had it right, and then we go to you, right? Um, I'm, I'm kind of having trouble keeping track. <laughs> um, so this may be accounted for in the geopolitics and economics factors, but mm -hmm. um, for the international index, are the forecasts also incorporating, just because you didn't speak to this as much, are they also incorporating the possibility of future energy integration across borders, like international integration, as far as like moving towards interconnected electrical grids? Right. And that security factor, because as that becomes more a thing, if that becomes a thing, um, yeah. and then there's the whole monitoring across borders and that's I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is something that if we could, we if we could measure it, yeah. and we could figure out how to measure it, and uh, we had data that we could get every year to measure it, we would do it, but we just can't do it. I mean, to the, to the extent that it, it, it impacts, uh, you know, uh, imports, electricity, and all sorts of things, we would pick that up. Um, but uh, it'd be very difficult for us to come up with a metric. We'd love to do it. I mean, there I can think of off the top of my head ten metrics I would love to have in this thing. We just we just can't do it. Sarah. Sure. Um, so thank you for your talk. Uh, my question is related to the resource curse. Um, I was wondering if the resource curse, you know, as it regards certain African countries in terms of precious metals, Nigeria in terms of oil, um, some say you know, Venezuela in terms of oil as well, if that's reflected in your report. Uh, if so, how? And then, if you see any major changes, yeah. In the resource curse so the the reason, <clears throat> to me, the resource curse is just just a matter of what type of government you have. You have a dysfunctional authoritarian government. You might have or you have a higher risk of having a resource curse than if you have a you know a democratic. You live in a democratic republic. To be honest with you, if every country behaved like Norway and Canada, I wouldn't be up here talking about energy security risk, right? But they don't. Uh, so that's why we're talking about energy security risk. So. Uh, when we measure things like the supply of oil in the world and supply of natural gas and coal, we use the Freedom House uh, um, measure of political and civil liberties to come up with. We use those as a proxy for reliability. Yeah. And so we measure two things that we measure: international the, the this international supply of, of energy. We use the Freedom House scores as a proxy for reliability, and then we also use a HHI, the herschel herfindahl Index, which, measure, which is a measure of concentration. So those are the two things that we use uh, to measure the risks attached to a barrel of crude oil or, or, or a ton of coal or, or uh, natural gas. So to the extent that those, so I think the answer to your question is strictly no, we don't measure the resource curves, but we kind of get at it through the things that we do measure using the Freedom House scores as sort of a proxy for reliability. And it's also, you know, a measure of, of uh, you know, what kind of government you live under. Yeah. What about cybersecurity and war? Another one we'd love to do. <laughs> uh, uh, choke points is, is certainly sure. another one, too. Uh, and we've tried to figure out a way to do choke points, and, and it's just very, very difficult. To do it, take it would, it would the effort required to do it would probably be more than we would be able to get out of it. We're pretty satisfied with what we have. We think it's it's a pretty good uh, guide to how well these countries do. But yeah, we could always do better if we had more data. Yes, sir. To what extent does industrial energy efficiency affect? 
Uh, well, we have that as one of our metrics. So uh, it affects things to the extent that uh, it improves and depends on, and I can't be honest with you, I can't recall what the weighting is. But you can see here, you know, we had, we had very, very uh, poor energy, uh, industrial energy efficiency, and it's improved probably, oof, probably uh, three or four fold uh, since the 1970s. This is one of the bright lights in the energy efficiency. Uh, commercial energy hasn't gone down as steeply as uh, industrial. And then I mentioned household energy has kind of been going in reverse, but, but seems to be getting better picked up in the last couple of years. But yeah, it's obviously a big factor and it's, and it's probably contributes more to improving overall US energy security than, than any other metrics uh, we measure in energy use. Yeah, so it's a big, uh, a big factor. Yes, sir. You seem like a pretty accessible person. Um, to any country who doesn't make the top 35 list, mm -hmm. are you often heckled or contacted for someone who's biased to be on the list? No, we send them a letter, a nasty letter, saying they have to do better. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it would appear to me it's a distinction to be on your list. Yes. Uh, to even make the list. So, um, you know, maybe somebody who's Number forty-five right now would like to do something to get on your list because, like, you know, so we only publish the top twenty-five. We don't we don't publish everybody. So, yeah. uh, and that list could change over time, right? Right, and the, we actually publish data for the top seventy-five, uh, but we publish detailed data for the top twenty-five. When we do our ranking, we just look at the top twenty-five. But yeah, so we, we say these are the 25 largest energy consuming countries. I think our year, the two thousand ten, or something like that. And so that's, those, those countries aren't going to change. Some of them may fall off the list, while others would go on the list, but we're not, right. not going to do that. We're just going to keep them the way they are. Uh, but we get a lot of interest from a lot of governments. Um, we want to take a look at this. Do you know who the bottom-ranked person in the country is right well, now? Well, it's probably Ukraine or something. Like Thailand does very poorly. And, and uh, out of the top 75, I can't think off my head. It's probably Ukraine. But, okay, but out of your 35, 10, and then the 25 after that. I mean, it's probably in your report, right? The international. Report. We just do the top twenty-five. Whoops! So we just do the top twenty-five. So, uh, so here's the list here, and this is, um, and you know, again, this is a mix of emerging economies, developing economies, and advanced economies here. But Thailand, South Korea, South Korea is the largest, or what used to be the largest energy importer. Um, they import a lot of energy. Oh, Japan! I didn't mention Japan. Japan was very interesting. Uh, let's see if I can. Uh, yeah, I can. Well, I'll, I'll just explain it by So, yeah, which, 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 which color is Japan? Turquoise. It's this one right here. Yeah. So, Japan was down here, was chugging along, and it was actually doing quite well in the ranking. And then Fukushima came. And they started having to import a lot more energy. And as a result, they probably dropped five places over, over the span of a couple of years. You understand when you're dealing with 20-some-odd metrics, 30-some-odd metrics, getting things to move is very, very hard. And the fact that they fell so precipitously just over the course of a few years because of a, a nuclear accident just goes to show you how, how impactful that was uh, in Japan. Yeah, so um, it's one of the interesting stories that... that uh, that our numbers kind of validate what everybody perceives to be uh, the situation uh, in Japan. Yes, sir, you had a follow-up, yeah? Um, yeah, I just, I just had a follow-up. Last follow question. Oh, last okay. question? And then, can we do two? Yes. yes okay. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody gets a shot. Okay. So, um, you kind of mentioned something in your answer that I wanted to follow up with a little bit. Um, and you said it was your opinion that if everybody behaved like Canada and Denmark, opposite of that thesis would be you can have sort of a democracy, you have a fragile sort of unstable democracy, and then if you add a bunch of oil or add a bunch of resources, that can actually cause the corruption. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that, of what the cause of the resource curse is, if it's the if it's the type of government itself or if it's the resource. And if the, or if it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think it's the type of government. I mean, it, it, my experience, and, and I'm not an expert in the resource course by any stretch of imagination, but my experience is whatever nature can throw at us, mankind can throw at, at us the same plus 10, you know, or times 10. 
humans have a pretty good capacity for screwing things up. We also have a pretty good capacity for making things a lot better. Uh, but even when you look at things like famines over the years, you know, when you look at the, the worst famines in, in history are not because of anything Mother Nature did, it's usually because of something governments did. And I think when you look at the resource curse, you're probably looking at the same sort of thing. Uh, yes, sir. Um, so with the shale revolution, it increased overall. Any risk is that mean? Are you, is there enough data to include methane in the environmental package? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And other people have raised the issue, and we haven't really taken a close look at that yet. We probably should, though. But you, you raise a good point. Because uh, one of the benefits, obviously, of switching from coal to natural gas is that uh, you're emitting less CO2 when you burn the natural gas. But those of us say, well, once you start taking account the methane that's emitted, yeah, that's an issue. There are other, other environmental metrics that we could use as well. But I, I, you know, I, I think the metrics that we have with CO2 are kind of a good proxy for where we are, but uh, that's certainly something that we probably should consider. So good suggestion. A lot of that was that the price of oil was very, very high. Then I think it was like 130 bucks or something like that. Yeah. So uh, I'm not going. You're probably not going to be surprised, but it's the uh, most heavily weighted metric in our index is the price of crude oil because it contains just a lot of information, right? Uh, and a lot of information that you couldn't get otherwise. So we weight the price of crude oil pretty heavily, and when the price of crude oil is that high, that's obviously going to have a have a big impact. Uh, the price of natural gas is also very high at that point, and we were imp importing a lot of that, uh, both crude oil and natural gas. So uh, those were the two biggest factors. Oh, and um, actually crude oil volatility. Crude oil volatility is one of these risks uh, that, that can move the needle. Uh, I, I mentioned that, that energy efficiency, things move very slowly, very gradually. Uh, crude oil price volatility is something that can really have an almost immediate impact on the index, and that's one of the things we saw in, in 2011, and we saw it more recently in 2015 as well. And that was when the price of crude oil was going down, right? But it still was was disruptive. Uh, so volatility is one of these things that can move the index a lot. Yeah. All right. I think that satisfied all the questions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.